Tonight we are going to begin the letter to the Ephesians, and there's a lot that you can say about the book of Ephesians by way of introduction. It's really a remarkable letter in the New Testament, but I, I want to begin by not really getting into any introductory thoughts or background or uh, things like that. I, I want to jump right into it, and we'll take some of the background as we come across it. Like we begin here in chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So the opening of the letter is very brief. In some of Paul's other letters, he gives more extensive greetings and introductions and such. Here, he pretty much gets right to the point. And he first introduced himself, a Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who he is, his apostolic credentials, and, and he makes a point to... to uh, to emphasize that he's an apostle by the will of God. Paul was not an apostle by popular election. He was not an apostle by self-initiative. He didn't wake up one morning and say, boy, I would really like to be an apostle someday. Uh, Nor was it, as I said before, by any kind of popular election. It was by the will of God. But what I really want you to notice here is the next phrase here in verse 1, where it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, what I find very fascinating about this is first of all, when you think about this church of Ephesus to begin with, this was a church that Paul had founded. This was a church that Paul had a very unique relationship with. He knew this city well. And not only was he an apostolic missionary and church planter there, at Ephesus we also see Paul the pastor. Paul was a pastor in Ephesus for three whole years. And he had taken that that very um, momentous step of separating the church from the synagogue in Ephesus and uh, starting his own work in what was called the School of Tyrannus, which was some sort of university lecture hall. And he decided to have teaching sessions there day by day. And he uh, had an incredible ministry there, both in Ephesus and in the outlying area. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he had a special bond, a special familiarity with them. They knew him, and he knew them. However, what I find very interesting about this is when you do a little bit of research, you find out that in a few ancient manuscripts, there is a blank space instead of the words, in Ephesus. Now, I don't want to uh, overemphasize this. I don't want to act as if it's in a lot of manuscripts. It's really just a few ancient manuscripts. But I find the idea fascinating. That in a few ancient manuscripts, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are blank, in wherever. And the other thing that I want you to think about is at the end of the letter to the Ephesians, there are very few personal comments by Paul to people in the Ephesian congregation. You would have expected more. I mean, you know how Paul did that at the end of some of his letters. You know, greet this person, greet that person, uh, so-and-so greets you, on and on and on, so forth and, uh, and so on. Paul really had a personal relationship with many of the churches that he wrote to, and he had definitely a personal relationship with the people in Ephesus. However, there are not many personal comments at the end of the letter. Now, I want to offer you a suggestion. I can't prove it. Don't, don't you know, call me a prophet or a heretic, whether or not I'm right or wrong on this. I'm just offering it out as a suggestion. I suggest to you that Paul deliberately wrote 
the letter to the Ephesians to be a letter that could apply to any church. It was not one of those letters that was written to solve a problem in a particular church. Do you remember some of the other letters of Paul, like 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? Just for example, he's saying, now as you wrote to me and asked about this and that, and then he goes on and addresses it, there's none of that in the letter to the Ephesians. Instead, in this letter, he's talking to them and he's relating to them, giving them the broad picture of God's work in the plan of the ages. And I think it's something that applies not just to the church at Ephesus, of course, but I guess what I'm trying to suggest is you could take the name of your own church and fill it in right there. It could be you or me. This letter is to us. It wasn't just to the ancient Ephesians. And, and to me, I'm, I'm, I should just say, I'm tantalized by the idea that there actually are a few ancient manuscripts with a blank space where it says, in Ephesus. Well, anyway, at the end there in verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a very typical greeting of the Apostle Paul. I'm not going to spend much time on it, even though you could preach two or three sermons right out of verse 2 right there. You could talk about the grace of God and how important that is in our life. And then you could talk about the peace of God and how important that is in our life. And then you could talk about the relationship between God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of sermons right there in verse 2. But because there's really nothing very unusual about this particular uh, greeting that Paul gave to the Ephesians, we'll move right on to verse 3. Now, before we begin verse 3, though, I have to preface it with something. Look in your Bible at the beginning of verse 3, and then look all the way to the end of verse 14, right? Do, Do you see that section right there in your Bible? In the ancient Greek, which we remind ourselves, that's the original language that Paul wrote in, right? He didn't write in King James English, right? He wrote in ancient Greek. In the ancient Greek manuscript, Ephesians 1.3 through 1.14 is one long sentence. It's as if Paul can't even stop and take a breath as he writes this out. That's how pumped up he is. That's how filled with the Spirit is. That's how excited he is about the information that's between verse 3 and verse 14. And I suggest to you something. You know how in a great opera or, or, or a symphony, they'll have what they call the overture. The overture is that beginning section where they lay out the tune that's going to dominate the rest of the opera or the rest of the symphony. And they bring it to you in an initial arrangement. I think that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in verses 3 through 14. He's giving us the overture, the melody, the theme that's going to dominate the rest of the letter. You could say that the verses between chapter, excuse me, the verses between verse 3 and verse 14, they set the tone for the rest of the letter to the Ephesians. And so right now, I just, I just can't keep myself but thinking of it. Paul wrote this from prison. There he is in a Roman prison somewhere. You know, and he's probably dictating this. He probably didn't write it with his own hand, as the custom was in that day. He probably spoke it, and he had a scribe right by him who would write it down in the letters. And so as Paul gets ready to go, he just speaks in one long, continual sentence. And that poor scribe is writing and writing and writing, and he's hoping that Paul will stop somewhere and take a breath. But Paul can't, because his heart is so filled with this majestic theme that he begins on here. And if you want to talk about a majestic theme, I'll tell you what's to come here in verses 3 through 14. He's going to talk about the work of the triune God on behalf of the believer. Now, when I say triune God, you understand what I mean? I mean, God the Father, 
God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Paul is going to talk to us about what they have done for the believer. That's the first thing he wants to address. And so he begins here. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which... He has made us accepted in the beloved. That describes the work of God the Father. So are we ready to take a look at this sort of phrase by phrase? First he begins and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, Paul asked for a blessing to be given or to be directed towards God the Father, not in the sense that we are greater than God and it is our place to bless him. You know, oh, bless you, dear God, you know, like you would bless a dear child. That's not the idea at all, of course. When the scriptures speak of man blessing God, the idea is that we are recognizing his glory and his honor and his goodness. I like what one commentator, Robert Mole, had to say about this. He said that the idea behind man blessing God is that we praise him with worshiping love. I don't know, there's just something about that phrase that I like. We praise him with worshiping love. And so we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Again, he says, because the Father already has blessed the believer with every spiritual blessing. Look at the line there again in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. In other words, we, we don't say, oh, praise you, Lord. We honor you, God, in the sense of flattery, in the sense that we're trying to you know, get ourselves in good with God so that he'll give us something. That's not it at all. Instead, the opposite is true. We see how much he has blessed us. We see how much he has given us. And then the spontaneous uh, response in our heart is to say, oh, we bless you, God. We praise you with this worshiping love. And so it's a a categorical statement there, right there in verse 3, where he says, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This blessing is ours. Now, when I say this blessing is ours, I want you to know that I speak to you here, I speak to this small group of people here this evening, as if you are all born again. I understand that it's possible that, that there may be some people who, who hear tonight or perhaps hear this by recording or some other way, they, they hear this at a later time, and, and they are not yet born again by the Spirit of God. They have not yet entered into this new covenant relationship with God the Father through his mediator, Jesus Christ, by faith, and and receive what Paul is talking about. So we need to understand that he's speaking here of what God has given to the believer, and that's simply the way that I'm going to speak throughout this letter. As if we understand that these are blessings, these are are, uh, bestowings that God has given to his children. So he says, who has blessed us? This blessing is ours. God's blessing and resources are there for us always. This speaks of an attitude and an assurance. You're not saying, well, I hope he's blessed me. I hope he will bless me. I I might be blessed someday. No, who has blessed us. 
I may as well begin, you know, as you can imagine, with a, with a letter that soars as high as this letter to the Ephesians does. You know Charles Spurgeon had a lot to say about it. And so here's the first Spurgeon quote for the evening here. He says this on this idea of that God has blessed us. He says, we are not sitting here and groaning and crying and fretting and worrying and questioning our own salvation. He has blessed us and therefore we will bless him. If you think little of what God has done for you, you will do very little for him. But if you have a great idea of his great mercy to you, you will be greatly grateful to your gracious God. I think that's spot on, isn't it? I mean, Spurgeon knew exactly what he was talking about. There's an assurance here and a response of praise and honor to God that comes from that insurance. But I have to notice something else here. When he says in verse 3, who has blessed us, I want to make this clear, he includes both Jews and Gentiles in the church at Ephesus and beyond. Let me just inform you of one of the themes that we're going to have to deal with a lot through this letter. And the theme is God's bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one new body that we call the church. That is a prominent theme in the letter to the Ephesians. And I think he alludes to it right here at the beginning. When he says, who has blessed us, he's not just talking about Jewish believers, nor is he just talking about Gentile believers. You see, in the first century, the Jewish people had a very strong sense that they were blessed, that they were called. And that they were predestined. You know what Paul wants to say? Paul wants to say, in Jesus Christ, these things belong to the Gentiles as well. And so he goes on and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This describes both the kind of blessings that we receive and the location of those blessings. What kind of blessings are they? They are spiritual blessings. And I can tell you, spiritual blessings are far better than material blessings. I think every one of us here, we seem to be fairly well-fed and well-clothed as we sit here tonight. We're sitting in a nice room with a nice dry roof over us. Thank the Lord for that. And so we can say we are materially blessed, aren't we? And we thank God for those material blessings. The material blessings that God has given us are much more than we could ever deserve from Him. But yet, how much more should we thank God for the spiritual blessings? I'll tell you something. A new heart is better than a new car. (laughs) A, a, A new creation in Jesus Christ is much better than having some sort of material possession. And to feed on Jesus Christ, it's much better than eating the best earthly food. If you are an heir of God in Jesus Christ, you are richer than the heir of the richest man who's ever walked this earth. To have God as our portion, to be blessed with every spiritual blessing. I suppose there's some people who are scoffers, say spiritual blessings, what can I do with that? I can't feed my family, I can't, I can't you know, uh, take uh, vacations with that kind of thing. What can I get with spiritual blessings? Well, these are very shallow people. If we have no appreciation for spiritual blessings, I would say, then we live at the same level as animals. Think about it for a moment. Animals. They live only to eat and to sleep and to entertain themselves and to reproduce. Doesn't that describe the lives of most people who walk this earth today? That's it. They live to eat, sleep, entertain themselves, and reproduce. That's it. But ladies and gentlemen, we are made in the image of God. 
and he's made something much higher for us. Yet many people choose to live, and might I say, you must say it's true, many believers choose to live at the level of animals. But God wants us to live and experience every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I'll tell you this, it's every spiritual blessing. That means that every blessing we receive, we receive it in Jesus Christ. And it also means that God wants to give us every blessing available. Now, when you read that, can you read that with great confidence and say, yeah, I'm experiencing that. I'm experiencing every blessing that God has for me. Or do you read it the same way that I do? Do you read that with this haunting sense that there's blessing out there that I don't have? That, that God intends more for me. And, and I'm talking, not talking about more fun, more excitement, more material things, but more riches in Jesus Christ that God has for me, but I have not yet appropriated. I have not yet experienced them. Well, reading something like this, if you're like me, it gives me a hunger. It makes it, I want more of that. God, you have given me in Jesus Christ more than I have received. I want to deepen my faith. I want to deepen my relationship to receive every spiritual blessing that you have appropriated for me. So it tells us all about the nature of these blessings in that they are spiritual blessings, but it also tells us where these blessings are located. Did you see what it says there? They are ours in the heavenly places in Christ. These blessings are higher, better, and more secure than earthly blessings. I said that a new heart was better than a new car. You know, the new car can be crashed tomorrow, can't it? The new car can be stolen. All the material things they have, how secure are they? But listen, the spiritual blessings that we have were lifted up into heavenly places in Christ. That's security. That's better than any bank. It's better than any, you know, fortress. It's better than anything else. That is real security for the blessings that God has given us. Now, as he goes on here, verse 4, I mean, pausing. Now he's going to come on and, and, and describe just a little bit more about these blessings. He, he started talking about these tremendous blessings that we have in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And so his mind just immediately leaps to describing one of these blessings. And he says here in verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Well, certainly this is one of the every spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, isn't it? The fact that he chose you. Our possession of every spiritual blessing is as certain as our being chosen by him. Notice what he says, just as he chose us in him. Has he chosen you? If you can say, well, yes. I mean, I don't want to sound boastful about it. I don't want to sound like, you know, nobody else is. But I have to say, yes, I think God chose me. Then he's also blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Notice those words, just as, just as he chose us in him. He gave us a security of that, but he also gave us this security of knowing that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. We dare not diminish what Paul wrote here. Believers are chosen by God and they are chosen before they have done anything or before they have been anything for God. It is the infinite free will of God. Now, do you believe that God respects the free will of man? I do. Well, how much more should we respect the free will of God? And God, in his free will, has chosen. 
He has a purpose, he has a plan, and he has chosen his people. I think of this great truth of God's choosing, of God's election. I think of it to be like a mighty sun that shines in the sky. Now listen, there's a problem when the sun shines in the sky. And you know what that is? Is it casts some shadows, right? Well, listen, there are some shadows that are cast by this understanding of God's great plan of election. When we try to reconcile human responsibility with divine sovereignty, somehow that ends up in the shadows. But the purpose of the light is not to cast shadows, but it's to guide our steps. And when we live in the light of God's electing love, he gives us the assurance that his plan is permanent and his plan is filled with love and a future for us. Now, you might be asking the question, I was, okay, so I say God chose me. Why? Why would God choose me? Let me tell you, I don't know. I will tell you this. The reasons for God's choosing are not capricious. Do you understand what I mean by that word capricious? Capricious means random. God didn't just say without any thought, without any plan, without, you know, he just didn't reach into a bag and say, oh, I'll pick this one, and then I'll pick this one, I'll just pick, I'll pick, just because I like to pick. No, 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 no. Every choice God makes, when he chose you, he had a purpose for it. He, he knew his plan, he knew you, he knew this, he knew that, he probably knew 20 or 100 other things, and it was filled with knowledge and love and understanding. Now, I admit, the purposes or the reasons for his choosing, they're past our finding out. But we know that in him, they're altogether wise and good. And we know then more than anything that the reasons that he chose us are in him. They're not in us. Can, can I just settle this right now? Skip ahead to verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did he choose you? It was according to the good pleasure of his will. Because he wanted to. I, I hate to disappoint you. God did not look out across the human landscape and say, oh, I'm going to take the best and the brightest and the most spiritual and the most beautiful and the smartest people, and those are the ones that I'm going to choose. Now, he didn't do that at all. He chose for reasons that are not in you, but the reasons are according to the good pleasure of his will. But we can't ignore the other thing that he says here in verse 4. Did you see that? Just as he chose us in him. You see, if we're chosen in Jesus Christ then we're not chosen for reasons outside of ourselves. It's not because we're just, we're chosen in Christ. You're not chosen outside of Christ, but in him. But then you have to keep walking up this staircase. Each step, he's going up, 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 more and more progress. He goes up to another line here in verse four again, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You know the way some people read this? You should just start reading at verse 4 and say, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be proud and arrogant and look down upon everybody else who isn't chosen. That's not what he says, is it? No, instead, it's that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We're not chosen only for salvation. We're also chosen for holiness. 
any understanding of God's sovereign choosing that diminishes our personal responsibility for holiness and sanctification, it falls short of the full counsel of God. I, I just picture in my mind, I picture in my mind a Christian living in the flesh, just in the flesh. I mean, they're, they're just, I don't know, however you want to think of it. Man, they're just in the flesh. You could fill in the description for yourself. But they're just living in the flesh, definitely not according to holiness and being without blame before him in love. And then they say, well, praise the Lord, isn't it great to be chosen? And you think of just putting your arm around that brother or sister say, dear, dear believer, I don't know what you think you were chosen to. But I read right here in the book of Ephesians that if you're chosen to salvation in Christ, you're also chosen to be holy and without blame before him in love. Where's the evidence of this? And so I want you to notice this as well. And again, it almost seems like every word that Paul writes has some kind of jewel encrusted in it, some kind of ornament hanging upon it. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Again, you just love that. Because haven't we seen in our lives holiness and people who are without blame but it doesn't seem like there's any love in their life at all. You know, they're strict, they're stern, they're cross, they're angry. They, they, they have this holiness that's like oppressive upon other people. Their, their holiness is like a pain to them and to others. And Paul says, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Holy and without blame before him in love. And then again, as we already read verse 5, but let's come back to it again right here. He says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. This is the Father's destiny for his chosen. That they would enjoy adoption as sons. I I don't mind including here and I don't think I'm going beyond the text when I say and daughters as well. But this is certainly the idea. That we are adopted into the family of God as part of our... Okay, he chose you. He chose you for salvation. He chose you to be in Christ. He chose you to be holy and without blame. And he chose you. He predestined you to be adopted as sons. By the way, are you frightened of that word predestination? You're frightened? It's right there. I'm not frightened by this at all. I read this and I say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank heavens that he predestined us to adoption as sons. That this was his predestined plan for us. I'm so happy that it doesn't say that that predestined us to be dragged through the agonies of hell. But instead it's a glorious idea. He predestined us to adoption as sons. This is the father's destiny for his chosen. He has a destiny and it's predestined. You are adopted. You're in my family. God's unfolding plan for us, it not only includes salvation and personal transformation, but a warm, confident relationship with the Father. That's what it means to be adopted as a son. I have to say, sometimes I think about this, and and I'm just struck with amazement at the love of God. You could meet a a beggar on the street and he's sick and he's filthy and he's hungry and he has no job 
and his clothes are rags. And he looks out to you through his hair that's hanging over his face. And it's filthy and it's matted and he smells bad. And he looks up to you and he's too, he's too humiliated to even say anything to you. But you can just barely see some whiteness in his eyes through the red streaks that are there. And he just looks to you with a sense of sympathy. And would you please do something for me? And you, you're a nice person. In your kindness, you say, I want to help that person. So what do you do? Well, most of us, we'd take a little bit of money out of our pocket, right? And we'd press it in his hand or we'd leave it for him in some way and walk on. But let's say you're much more kind than that. Let's say you are a person of spectacular kindness. You, you are a person of, of absolutely triumphant love. And so what do you do? You take that person up and you, you help them up from the ground and you, and you uh, put them in your car and you drive. You drive them to your house. And at your house, you clean them up and you prepare a meal for them and, and, and you, you put new clothes out for them and you arrange for them to have a job and then you arrange for them to have an appointment with the doctor and, and you bring the person back to health and to strength and, and you fix up all these things and you look at this person. You have saved this person. And you say to them, you can come live in my house and, and I'll provide for your needs for the rest of your life. Now, we would stand up, to get, we would applaud you. We would say, you are a person of outstanding love. Now, this is what I want to get at. You could do all of that for that person and not adopt them into your family as a child. Do you understand that this adoption as sons and daughters, it's completely unnecessary. God did not have to do this to save your soul from hell. God didn't have to do this to bless you. He didn't have to do this to fill you with His Spirit. He didn't have to do this to, to use you in His plan. Then why, why did He adopt you as a son or a daughter into His family? Because He loves you. Because He wants to be close with you. And He loves you so much, He says, I want that kind of close relationship with you. And you know, when he's drawing on this figure of adoption here, he's appealing to the institution of adoption in Roman law. And in Roman law, when adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who was adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. And he lost every standing in his old family. In the eyes of the law, and I mean Roman law, an adopted person was a completely new person. If you owed money in your old family, you adopted into a new family, all, all your debts were canceled. It, you see, you were a new person when you were adopted into this family. And so friends, this idea here that God has loved us so much, now this is one of these every spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. And this is part of the destiny that God has for you. Remember what I said before about this sense that God has more blessing for us than we actually experience and live in our life? Don't you feel this when you read about this sense of adoption? That, that, that there's more love, that there's more closeness, that there's more, more depth of relationship with your Savior, with God your Father, than you have yet experienced. And He loves you so much that He adopted you. Now, I think when we read this, it gives us 
in part, an answer to one of the greatest mysteries of the ages. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why would God go ahead with creation? You say, okay, Mr. God, you know, Mr. Election, Mr. Predestination, Mr. You-Know-It-All, then why would you go ahead with creation when you knew mankind would fall? You knew Adam and Eve would sin. You knew the destiny of the fallen human race, everything from the flood to the massive wars that have covered this earth. You knew it all. Why did you still do it? And one answer to this, I don't think it's the only answer, but one answer that can be given is that God says, I had something higher for these people than they could ever have in the Garden of Eden. I I, I don't want to infer too much from this, but I'll just lay it out to you, Flame, because I believe it very, very strongly. Adam was never adopted into the family of God. This place of having adoption as sons, I don't see Adam having this same relationship. Here's what I want to get to. We gain more in Jesus Christ than we ever lost in Adam. And God can only bring that about by allowing the fall. I don't mean to imply for a moment that Adam didn't have a relationship with God. We hear of Adam and God walking together in the cool of the garden. We hear of this rich relationship that they had. But adoption as a son into the family of God, we don't hear of that. It's not spoken to us. This high position in the family of God gives us something in Jesus that it seems that Adam never had. And no wonder then, in verse 6, why Paul writes, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. This relational aspect, the relational aspect that was suggested by the term adopted, it's again emphasized as Paul describes the status of accepted. When you read that word in verse 6, where he says, we're accepted in the beloved, he uses a particular Greek word, keritu. It's from the, gra- the, the, the root of the word grace, charis. And what it means is highly favored or full of grace. It's only used two times in the entire New Testament. Here in Ephesians 1.6 and then in Luke chapter 1, verse 28. You know who was speaking in Luke 1.28? The angel Gabriel. Do you know who he was speaking to? Mary. And he said, Hail, highly favored one. I remember it from my Roman Catholic catechism when we had to learn the Hail Mary, right? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Now listen, I think this is very interesting here. Was there ever a more blessed woman to walk the face of the earth than Mary? Talk about special. One woman selected from every woman who's ever walked the face of this earth to say, you are going to bear the Messiah. That, that is, that's chosen. That's blessed. And what did God say to her through the angel Gabriel? You're full of grace. You're highly accepted. Now the only other place in the whole New Testament where that word is used, now the Apostle Paul takes it and he uses it for you. It's as if the angel Gabriel just flew through this window right now and he looks at you and he says, you know, uh, Hail, Andrew, full of grace, highly favored. 
And he speaks to each one of you by name. And he says, this is you. You're in a new relationship now. You are highly favored. You are accepted. But again, you've got to look at verse 6 in its entirety. Like I said, it's almost as if every word has gold plating around it. Every word has a jewel encrusted in it. He says, hail so-and-so. You're highly favored. You're accepted because you're so wonderful. No? Do you see what he says there? Which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Who, who's the beloved? Well, Jesus Christ. That's the ground of your acceptance. Why are you accepted? You are accepted because you are in Christ. And therefore, you're accepted in the beloved. I have to say that if you understand Ephesians 1.6, it'll change your life. If you understand that you are genuinely and profoundly accepted by God in Jesus Christ, on what basis? Your works, your faith, your commitment, your devotions. You tell me on what basis by looking there at verse 6. I'll tell you, look at it very carefully there. He says, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. What does he say is the basis for your acceptance in Jesus Christ? His grace. By His grace, you've been made accepted. You see, God's grace has been extended to His people and it's sort of surrounded them. He's begraced them. He has accepted them in Jesus Christ. And all of this, all of this plan it gives glory to the grace of God. You know, when God gave the law, His justice and His holiness were rendered the most glorious. But when He gave the gospel, His grace and His mercy stood out as being the most glorious. And so this is beautiful. You know, every human being, every person in this room, every person who ever listened to this, however they listened to it, me, you, every one of us, we're born with a fundamental need to be accepted. You want to be accepted. Now, maybe not by everybody. I'm sure there's many people that you meet or pass by every day. You don't care one way or another if they accept you or not. But that doesn't mean you don't have a need for acceptance. You were born with this need. You lived with it all through your childhood years. Remember that in school? How much you wanted to be accepted by your teachers, by your classmates? And then as you grow up, you're, you're looking very desperately for that one person to whom you can live your life with, and you'll say, they'll accept me. I, I can show them everything about myself, and they'll still accept me. I want to be accepted. I'm here to tell you that God understands this root, psychological, soulish, whatever you want to call it, this root need within the human person, and He says, I mean it to be satisfied by my grace in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't mean to say for a moment that when you realize that you are accepted in the Beloved, that you have no more need for the acceptance of man, but it certainly puts it in a whole other category. Then when a human being rejects you, well, it doesn't feel nice. But you say, well, at least I'm accepted by Jesus Christ. I'm accepted in the Beloved. If everybody else turns their back on me, I have a friend in Jesus. He's my close friend you notice a great difference in the lives of people who have this acceptance issue in Christ reconciled and those who do not. 
Because the people who do not have this sense that they are accepted in the beloved, they walk around with a constant hunger to be accepted by other people. Please like me. Please accept me. Please don't reject me. I don't know if I can take it anymore. Or they harden themselves. I don't care about you. I don't care about anybody. I don't need anybody. You know, neither one of those are healthy or true. You know, what it is is, listen, I'm accepted in the beloved. My soul is at peace with God. My fundamental need for, for peace and acceptance, it's satisfied in Jesus Christ. And so now, I hope that you and I can have a beautiful relationship. But should you reject me? I have a friend in Jesus. Well, these verses 3 through 6 We've gone on for, I don't know, almost 40 minutes, it seems, and we've just talked about the work of the Father. What about the work of the Son? Uh, verse 6, or excuse me, 7 and 8. Now look, we, we have to follow along carefully here, because in verse 6, he said, To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Who's the Beloved? It's Jesus. So we could read it, who has made us accepted in Jesus, Right? So now when you start verse 7 and he says, in him, who's the him? The him is the beloved. The him is Jesus. So it's in Jesus we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. In him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. And might I say, it's in him and in nowhere else. There is no possible redemption outside of Jesus and his redeeming blood. Now, what does it mean when we talk about redemption? The word redemption always implies a price that is paid for the freedom that is purchased. It uses the ancient Greek word lutruo, which means literally to liberate on the receipt of a ransom. So what was the price? What well, says right there in verse 7? Through his blood. Now, when this came through his blood, it shows that it's a blessing that comes from the Father and the Son, and that it comes not only from a divine decree, but it also comes according to his righteousness and holiness. When God redeems us, it's because justice has been satisfied. Look at it this way. Jesus does not redeem us by his sinless life. He does not redeem us by his godly example. He, he does not redeem us by the miracles that he did. I would say this, and please don't take me wrong when I say this. I hope I'm not stepping on any here. He doesn't even save us. He doesn't redeem us by his wonderful teaching. He redeems us by his death in our place. By his blood. He didn't redeem us through his power. He didn't redeem us even through his love. God could have power, God could have love, but without the shed blood that satisfied the justice of God, then none of it matters. It's through his blood. Now, we should not take a superstitious or a mystical view of the blood of Jesus Christ. It was not the physical blood of Jesus that saved anyone. You know, as you walk through the 
museums and the cathedrals and other places here in Europe where you see these wonderful paintings and such, you'll see a very common motif at the death of Jesus Christ. You'll see this painting of Jesus on the cross. You'll see the blood dripping down from his wounds. And then oftentimes you'll see the blood going down into the ground and then in some cavern or crevice underneath the cross, you'll see the bones of Adam. And sometimes as the blood touches the bones of Adam underneath the cross, because this is some medieval legend that the bones of Adam were hidden underneath Golgotha and the blood actually dripped down upon them, that that Adam is resurrected, that Adam is brought back to life as the physical blood of Jesus touched his bones. Of course, we understand that's a medieval legend. It's nonsense. In the medieval world, and I suppose even today, people were in love with this idea of relics, right? That relics were things that they could go a little piece of the bone of St. Joseph, a a little sliver of the manger that Jesus was laid in, you know, on and on and on, this and that, all these different relics. Well, what would it be like today if you actually had some of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross? Let's just pretend for a moment. You had some of that. Let's say it's no longer in its liquid form, but it's still in a dried sort of mass and a little old-looking vial, there it is, some of the actual blood that poured forth from Jesus on the cross. Now, if you took some of that blood and applied it in a ceremonial manner to the forehead of a sinner, would that save them? No. We understand that when it talks about the blood here, we don't mean it in a mystical or a superstitious way. It's not as if the physical blood of Jesus, if it were applied. It's not as if the Roman soldiers, when they nailed the, the spikes into Jesus' hands, and when they were splattered by little bits of his own blood, that they were instantly saved because they were splattered by the blood of Jesus as he was nailed on the cross. No, when it says the blood, we understand it that it means his sacrificial death on our behalf. That's what it means. And so here it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You know, I was just going to pass by those words, the forgiveness of sins, but how can you pass that by? You understand how blessed it is to have your sins forgiven? Maybe none of you in this room, maybe none of you have sinned bad enough to know the joy of forgiveness. I don't recommend that you go out and do it. I just pray that you just ask God to show you what a sinner you are. You you don't need to sin more to know that you're a real sinner. But when you know how, how deeply sinful you really are to your core, and to realize that it can be forgiven. Well, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We're on verse 7 and 8 again. According to the riches of His grace. This redemption and forgiveness that's given to us, it comes according to the measure of the riches of His grace. Look, let me put it to you this way. It's telling us that it's not a small redemption. It's not a small forgiveness. I'm going to give you... uh, I'm going to give you money according to the riches of the man who owns Ikea. I forget his name. One of the richest men in the world. Or Bill Gates, or some incredibly rich man. Some sultan in Saudi Arabia. Whatever you want to say. I'm going to give you money according to the riches of this great wealthy man. Now, is that a little bit of money or is that a lot of money? No, it's a lot of money, right? 
If you're giving it according to the riches of somebody, well, then that's a lot. Well, how rich is God in grace? Hey, he's pretty rich. I think God has more grace than Bill Gates has money. I think God has more grace than anybody has anything. And so we see that this redemption, this forgiveness, it's not little. It's given according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. I think it's interesting. Many people think that it's unwise of God to lavish such redemption and forgiveness on guilty sinners. You know, Lord, you can't do this grace thing with people. If you deal with them on the basis of grace, if you say, I accept you, not because of what you are, but because of the riches of my grace, I will accept you and bless you, and I'll elect you. You can't do that, God, because then they'll just abuse your grace. They'll say, oh, I just want to sin more and more because it doesn't really matter. Yes. And God says, no, no, no. I've done this according to my wisdom. It's not a foolish plan. Which he made abound to us in all wisdom and prudence. Might I just say, it just tells God's smart. When he lavished his grace upon you, he knew what he was doing. It's in all wisdom and prudence that he's given this to us. Well, now verse 9. Verse 9 speaks more about the work of Jesus Christ, but I regard verses 9 through 12 as sort of a, 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 a side thing that Paul is getting to. It's, it's sort of a bunny trail. He's getting off just a little bit. Because remember, the broader context here, he's talking about the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and then what would you expect next? The work of the Holy Spirit. Well, he'll get to that. Don't worry about that. But here he wants to focus on this one aspect of the work of God that we'll call the mystery of his will. So let me read you verses 9 through 12. He says, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Okay. Part of what belongs to us under the riches of his grace, part of every spiritual blessing that he's given to us, is that he has made known to us the mystery of his will, which I would define as God's great plan and purpose, which was once hidden, but now is revealed to us in Jesus. You see, through the Apostle Paul, God calls us to consider the greatness of God's great plan of the ages and our place in that plan. Paul says, you know what, in between talking about the Son and the Spirit, let me just tell you, God's got a tremendous plan for all of the ages, and you have a place in it. Do I need to remind you what a mystery is in the New Testament sense? A mystery in the New Testament is not something that's hard to figure out. It's not like a murder mystery or something like that. A mystery in the New Testament sense is something that you could never know unless it was revealed to you. Now, you may know it. You might know the mystery, but you would have never known it unless it was revealed to you. It's something that you couldn't figure out on your own. Something had to inform. So this mystery of his will, we could have never figured it out on our own. 
But now he's going to reveal it to us. Well, Lord, what is the mystery of you? What's this great plan? What, what, what is it that you're doing? You've revealed it to us. What is it? Look at how he's going to begin this here. Right here in verse 10. That, all right, now, I'm going to read this a little bit different. Because Paul throws in some phrases there that I think is poss- makes it possible for us to lose sight of what he's really talking about. So I'm going to give a little bit different reading of verses 10 and 11, or mostly verse 10 here. Notice here. Okay, follow along careful. That he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, in him. This is God's ultimate plan. To bring together, that is to ultimately resolve all things in Christ. Some things will be resolved in Jesus as Savior. Some things will be resolved in Jesus as a judge. But all of it will be resolved. And when will it happen? It will happen, as it says there, in the fullness of times, in verse 10. You see, it's very interesting, the word there that he uses in verse 10, for gather together. When he says that he might gather together in one, the idea is to unite or to sum up. I I want you to get an idea here. I want you to get a a word picture, a picture here that I think illustrates what Paul's talking about. I want you to think of of a brilliant mathematics professor. Okay? And he's there at an immense chalkboard. Right? And the class is before him and he has a piece of chalk in his hand. And he starts writing out the problem. And you know how it is when it's a very complex mathematical equation, right? You don't understand any of it. He's just... But he's brilliant. Every piece is right. And then he pauses right in the middle of it. And what does he do? He walks over to the far, lower, right-hand corner of the chalkboard. I I mean, look, he's, you know, feet and feet away from it. You go, wow, I mean, that's a big distance. But he stopped right in the middle of writing out the problem. And he walks over. In the bottom right-hand corner, he writes out the answer. Seven or something like that. I don't know. He just writes an answer right there. And you go, whoa! He just showed us the answer. He showed us this. He's not even done writing out the problem yet. But he went over and he showed us the answer. He showed it what the whole problem is going to come back and equal to. This is the sum. This is the gathering together. This is the answer, the equation. Here it is, all answered, right here. And he circles it. And it's not, it's not a number. It's a name. It says Jesus Christ. The whole problem, so to speak, the whole equation of the universe, it's all going to be worked through and summed up right there at the end into Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's telling us right there. That he might gather together, that he might unite or sum up all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. It's in Jesus that all the answers lie. It's how he's going to unify all things. And when is he going to do it? He said, well, Lord, finish working through the answer or working through the whole problem, I should say. You've given us the answer. When are you going to get done working through the whole problem? He tells you right there in verse 10. When? In the fullness of the time. When the time's right. Oh, look, you're so frustrated because God hasn't worked through the whole equation yet, right? You expect him to work through it, Lord. Work through the whole equation. He says, listen, I've already given you the answer. I'll work out the equation. You you can pay attention while I do it. 
I want you to join with me. I'll even take you through some of the problems myself. But listen, trust me, I'm the Lord of this chalkboard. And I've told you what the answer to the great problem of the universe is right there. Now, he can't stop at that. He goes on in verse 11. He says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. You see, for believers, Jesus is not a judge, but the one in whom we have an inheritance. Believers are predestined for this according to the counsel of his will. Again, what are the reasons for him choosing us for this inheritance? Because of him. And then he brings up that word predestination again, verse 11. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We see three aspects of God's plan working together. It begins with his purpose, then the counsel of his will, and then it goes into his work. God makes his plan carefully, according to an eternal purpose. He takes counsel within the Godhead, and then he works with all wisdom. And there he is. He's laying it all out for everybody to see. And what is he laying out? Well, verse 12, this is part of the plan. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. God's purpose in all this is that those who have trusted Christ will exist to the praise of his glory. The goal of God's ultimate plan is to glorify him. And when he says, we who first trusted Christ, I think he's talking about Jewish believers. You see, the you also in verse 13, in him you also trusted That's in verse 13. That's speaking of Gentile believers. So he's saying, listen, God first showed our place in this equation, the Jewish believers. He's working through that part of the equation first, right? He goes, oh, well, now I better bring in the Gentiles. So now he starts putting up the Gentile part of the equation. And he's writing busily on the backboard. Because listen, this whole equation that God is drawing up, it's been done according to his eternal purpose, with his eternal counsel within the Godhead. And he's working it out now for everybody to see. Right, so that's the parenthetical thing. We started out with the work of the Father, the work of the Son. You might just say that when he talks there about the mystery of his will passage, that it is actually the outworking of his power three in one, how the Godhead takes counsel within itself. But now, in verses 13 and 14, he's talking about what the work of the Holy Spirit is. Look at it here, verse 13. In him you also trusted... After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, first he says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. God's sovereign choice works but it doesn't exclude human cooperation. I love this. Listen, you have to admit, the first 12 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, it's hard to get more predestinarian than that, right? Man, it's all about God chose, he elected, you're adopted, he predestined this, he predestined that. You just think, whoa, you know, we're being overwhelmed by the awesome sovereignty and predestination of God. And then he busts it right out in verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. He says, well, what does my trust have? Well, look, why do I have to trust him? If he saved me, he saved me, right? If I'm predestined, I'm predestined. If I'm elected, I'm elect. 
If I am elect, there's nothing I can do against it. If I'm not elect, there's nothing I can do to change it. So I guess it's just all going to lay out the way it is. You know, that is never the attitude the Bible takes. Never. And I love it when the Bible takes this passage where it's just like one of the high points of stressing God's predestined plan in the first 12 verses and then right there in verse 13. He goes, and you know, your trust in him is also very important. After you heard the word of truth, you see, these ones who were so sovereignly chosen were also the ones who trusted, heard the word of truth, and believed. And then in response to that, he says it right there, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Essential in God's work is the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. His presence in our life acts like a seal which indicates ownership. Now listen. Do you have any sense that the Holy Spirit is active in your life? Now, I'm not saying that he can't be in you and you have no sense of it. But how much more reassuring it is when you have a sense that the Spirit of God is active in your life. You say, man, there's my seal of ownership. I can see it right there. You know, uh, my wife and I, a few weeks ago, we were in in, uh, Paris. And we walked up that... The Champs-Élysées, the famous, you know, shopping street. And there it was. We saw a crowd outside of the store, Louis Vuitton. And we looked inside of that store, and man, you're paying like 10,000 euros for a purse. And you're just looking, you're scratching your head, and you say, well, what, I mean, what possibly could be so great about this 10,000 you know, euro purse that somebody would carry around. And I'll tell you what's so great about it. You look, and all over it, it says Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton. And I'm thinking, what kind of moron buys something where you have to advertise for somebody as they're walking around, you know? You're doing your advertising for them, but that's why people want it. They want to wear it because it has the mark of ownership on it, and they carry it around. Ooh, they have Louis Vuitton. Wow, it has the mark of ownership on it. And every time that that lady's carrying her purse, she can look down and read it. There it is right there. It says, Louis Vuitton, I'm special. Listen, the mark of the Holy Spirit in your life is the work and the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life should be so evident that you can look at it and you say, there's the seal of the Holy Spirit on me. I'm special. He's given me the Holy Spirit. I have this wonderful thing from him. He's the guarantee of my inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Listen, we have this guarantee until we're completely purchased by God. It's all going to happen to the praise of his glory, as he says there at the end of verse 14. But listen, we were believed and then we were sealed. Now listen, I have to say, I just love this again. Every time I read through this, I see this with new eyes. There in verse 13 where he says, Having believed, you were sealed. Now again, with Paul's, if you want to say, bent or emphasis towards predestination, shouldn't you read there, having been predestined, you were sealed? But you don't read that. Paul says, no, 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 no. All of God's elect are also believers. How do you know if you're one of God's elect? Well, then why don't you believe? And then you'll find out that you are. It's a beautiful thing. 
anyone who takes these great doctrines of the sovereignty of God or, or, or the predestination of God and changes them into something that makes people passive or fatalistic or just say, well, whatever will be, will be, then they don't understand the biblical understanding of election or predestination at all. Now, on to verse 15. He's talked about it very thoroughly here. Now, the father has a role, right? He has a work. The son has a work. And now the Holy Spirit has a work as well. So look at it here. We begin now, um, well, verse 15. I, well, all right, let's start here. Verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. You see, when Paul heard of the faith and the love of the Ephesians, all he could do is pray for them and give thanks for them. That's because their faith and their love was evident. And so he says, listen, I, I pray for you. I pray for all the saints. I make mention of you in my prayers. By the way, I think this shows us something very powerful too, something that's convicting for me. It shows us here that preachers must do more than preach to their audience. They should also pray for them. And sometimes I wonder, I wonder whether our sermons or our prayers do more good for the people who hear us. But as Paul did, we should both preach and pray for our people. So he says, when I heard about your faith, when I heard about your participation in this great plan that I've been spelling out, well then, I just had to make mention of you in my prayers. And so now, verse 17, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Do you understand what that says? Paul prayed that the Father would grant to the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and that he would give them revelation. But, but one, it wasn't so that they could see into the lives of other people. It wasn't so that they could predict future events or, or do what we commonly think of as prophetic stuff, right? Lord, give me the spirit of wisdom. Give me the spirit of revelation so that I can see all the sin in my brother's life that's hidden. Isn't that the way a lot of people think? No, 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 I want the spirit of wisdom. I, I, I want the, the spirit of revelation for what? Oh, it's beautiful there at the end of verse 17. In the knowledge of him. Listen, uh, Mr. Spirit of Wisdom. Hello there, Mrs. Uh, spirit of Revelation. Do you know him better? D don't talk to me about all your great prophetic insight. Tell me that you know him better. That's the real measure of this outpouring that God's talking about here. It's in the knowledge of Him. It's important for us to have an accurate and knowledgeable understanding of who we are, but how much better to have a real understanding of who God is. Listen, if you really want to be smart, don't get to know yourself. Get to know God. I'm not saying there's nothing to learn from yourself. There's a lot to learn from yourself. It's mostly depressing. But get to know God. It's the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And listen, isn't this, doesn't this bring our own prayer life up short? So many people, when they have a need, we think their real solution to that need is that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation into their own deep problems. Or into this technique. No, listen, what you need? You need the spirit of wisdom and revelation in Him. And going on here, verse 18. 
that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. If the Ephesians wanted to know everything that God had given them in Jesus, it would take a supernatural work. The eyes of their understanding had to be enlightened. You're not going to know all there is to know about the Christian life just by the bare reading of facts. Now read your Bible, but as you read your Bible, it has to be the work of the Spirit of God in you. This is a spiritual work. The eyes of your understanding, or better put, the eyes of your heart need to be opened up. They need to be enlightened. And that's a work of the Spirit of God. That you may know what? The hope of His calling. You know, nothing is going to give you more security in your life than to know the hope of His calling. God's given me a calling and it's a hope. My future is secure with Him. I don't have to worry about the future anymore. The believer has a glorious future of resurrection, eternal life, freedom from sin, perfected justification, glorious elevation above the angels themselves. That's the hope of your calling. But then also, what you would know, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul wanted them to know, and again, I want you to read that again. Paul wanted them to know the greatness of God's inheritance in his people. When you read the word inheritance right there, don't you normally just automatically think that he's speaking of our inheritance in God? That's what we usually jump to. I want you to notice that's not what he's speaking of here. He's speaking of his inheritance in us. Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand that they're so precious to God that he considered them his own inheritance. I have to say, this amazes me. Remember when Jesus started out in the Beatitudes? The first of the Beatitudes, what was it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what you got to be when you come to God, right? Poor in spirit. And so you say, well, Lord, Lord, If your inheritance is me, I feel sorry for you, God. You know, it's like saying, Woo, my grandmother left me an inheritance. Yahoo, what is it? And you go, you find out it's this old junked car that's going to cost you money to get rid of. You say, Thank you, Grandma, for your inheritance. You know, I feel like I'm more of a liability than that old junked car to God. Say, Well, Lord, how can you have any richness in your inheritance in me? Well, I'll tell you how that works. God makes riches out of poor men and women. Do you know why? Because he invests so much in them. He invests in them the riches of his love, the riches of his wisdom, the riches of suffering, the riches of glory. And these things gain interest within ourselves and they make for a rich inheritance in the States. And then he goes on here. The exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. That's in the middle part of the beginning part of verse 19. Paul wanted them to know the great power of God and how great it is towards them who believe. And you got to say, many Christians do not know this power. They only know it from a distance. God wants resurrection life to be real in the life of the believer. And this is what he wants for us. Now, you have to say, this ends 
the request portion of Paul's prayer. Basically, in the first chapter of Ephesians here, we've had two sections. We've had Paul telling us what God did for us. The work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit, with a little section in between there where he talked about God's great plan of the ages and our place in it. And then a prayer. And in the prayer, it's mostly... Paul requesting things for his people, that the eyes of your understanding be a lightning, that you know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory in the saints. We understand all of that. But now, beginning in the middle of verse 19, he's going to describe the power that he wants us to know. Here it is. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. Well, I have to say that I I feel somewhat the press of time upon us here this evening, but let me just summarize this very quickly to say this. Paul says, you want to know the power of God, I will give you the ultimate demonstration of the power of God, and it's when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and ascended him to heaven and seated him at the right hand of God the Father. That is the ultimate demonstration of power. And it shows us that there's no such thing as a power shortage in the Christian life, or there never needs to be. How mighty was this power? It took Jesus all the way from the cross to the throne of God. You understand what the cross was, right? It was a place of shameful execution. It's like it's saying it took him from the hangman's noose or or from the gas chamber, from the electric chair, all the way up to the throne of God. How about that? I I changed the electric chair for a throne. That's power. He says, this is the power that God wants you to know. I have to say, this, this is amazing here. Think of the paradox here. You know, when the Apostle Paul writes this, Jesus is of recent history. Jesus' death was just perhaps 20 years ago. And so it's almost contemporary history. Everybody knew that Jesus had lived and worked and this. It's as if you would take a person who had lived some 20 years ago and you say, you know that person here that we all knew, that he all walked around, that everybody knew? You see that person? Well, right now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Right now he's ascended into heaven. Oh, he died a shameful death like a criminal. But I'm telling you, that man right now, he's up there at the right hand of God the Father, ascended into heaven. And that's power that has done that. Again, when he says that you would know, back to the beginning part of verse 19, the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, that's the power that God wants you to know. Resurrection power in your life. And then finally, last two verses of the chapter here, verses 22 and 23. It says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This great resurrection power placed Jesus above all things. Now, all things are under his feet. It set Jesus as the head over all things, including the church. You know, sometimes we talk about Jesus being the head of the church, right? And it's accurate. It's true, right? I want you, he's the head of everything. He's not just the head of the church. He's the head of everything. He gave him to be head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. You see, if Jesus is the head, then the community of Christians make up his body. And then the idea there of the fullness of him is probably connected to the manner in which Jesus fills his church with his presence 
and his blessings. Well, I have to say, we read all of this and, wow, man, what, what a staggering chapter. I mean, just from a very sort of normal greeting, right? Nothing spectacular in the greeting. Then just, bam, the work of the Father. Bam, the work of the Son. Then, then an overview, a very quick overview. God's plan of the ages, the working out the problem of the blackboard and summing up all things into Jesus Christ. And then the work of the Spirit sealing us and guaranteeing us our inheritance. And then he says, well, Paul says, well, in light of all that, let me pray for you. And he prays that God would give them wisdom and understanding and a knowledge of that power. And they say, well, let me tell you about this power. It's the same power that not only raised up Jesus from the dead, but lifted him up to the right hand of God the Father, where he's reigning over all things. Everything's under his feet and he's reigning as the head of the church and we're the fullness of his presence here on the earth. Can I remind you something that we didn't see at all here tonight? What, what you have to do for all this. Well, no, I take that back. I remember do reading a couple words here. You remember them too. Believed. Trusted. Here's my prescription for you tonight. Before you go to bed, sit down and read this chapter. Literally, it'll take you five minutes, right? If you read it carefully, ten minutes maybe. But as you read it, you think about the words and you say, Oh Lord, I want it to be mine by faith. I don't want this to just be words on a page. Lord, you spoke about the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I want that work to be real in my life. You spoke about a great plan of the ages where you're going to sum up everything in Jesus Christ. I want that to be real in my life. And Paul prayed for wisdom and understanding and the eyes of our heart being opened. And he spoke about knowing the power of Jesus and his resurrection and his exaltation. Lord, I I want that. To believe, to trust it. You do not have to earn any of this. You can't earn it. But God gives it freely to his covenant people with whom they receive it by faith. Well, Father, that is our prayer here for this evening, Lord. And I I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just fill us with this understanding, that just as Paul prayed, that the eyes of our understanding, the eyes of our heart, as it is more literally in the Greek, would be opened. And that we would have this revelation of your power, your majesty, your predestined plan for us, your plan for the ages, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit. That you'd give us a vision of Jesus lifted up high in every, uh, in, in the heavenlies, Lord, dispensing every spiritual blessing to his people and being head over the church. Lord, it's, it's such a glorious vision. I guess our prayer, Lord, is that you would transform this so that it would not be merely ink on a page for a single one of us, but that you'd work it into our experience to do this by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.